When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod. Use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Our hopes for a soft landing fading. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Warren Pies, founder of 314 Research, joins us. Today to break down the market action and look ahead to next week's Fed meeting. Hi, Warren. How you doing? It's 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 kind of feels like we're we're all like limping into the close here. It's been a busy, stressful week, and we're ending on on a negative note. FedEx really blew a hole in the equity market after the company withdrew its uh, full year guidance and said conditions in the global economy were worsening significantly. It really seemed to spook the market. We've got um, the Dow down about a half a percent S&P off almost three quarters and NASDAQ down almost 1% as we close out here. What did you make of the market action today? Logical. Um, I don't think it's, uh, you know, FedEx is your your classic bellwether kind of stock. You know, obviously if FedEx is missing earnings, then you can extrapolate that a bit. The, the earnings miss seem to be particularly bad. It was a 33% below analyst estimates. So, you know, that's been the, I still can contend, that's been our contention, is that the market's trying to determine where full year 2023 earnings for the market's going to go. And then from there, you can slap a multiple on that, interest rates, things like that. And that's how you back into whether this market is fairly valued, undervalued, or, or overvalued. And so this is kind of the battleground, I think, for the market right now. So it makes sense for, the, for everyone to get spooked on, on this miss. Um, I, I think that we, uh, you know, I, I think it's important not to take too much from one data point though. And, and we can walk through our earnings numbers in, in where we're at for next year, which we have some softness already baked in. Yeah. L- let, let's talk about that a little bit. Cause we're entering this, you know, this, um, pre-announcement, I guess you could call it season. Right. And, um, FedEx is just one company, but I think it spooked people, as you said, because it kind of reaches right. They deliver the goods that so many of us order and so many, they touch so many different industries. And that stock was, I don't even know, I, I didn't get the closing price, but it was down what over 24%. I think it was his biggest fall in 40. I mean, it's a huge move in that stock. So what are you looking at in earnings? Do you think it's an outlier or, you know, is the market really not prepared for what's coming at us? I'd be shocked if, 
that's going to be 33% under estimates is, is more than we have baked in for our estimates for next year. I mean, we run top-down models, so we're not building bottoms-up earnings models. We're looking top-down. Mm-hmm. As of now, uh, full year 2023 analyst estimates for, I think, $244 a share of S&P earnings. And we, according to our models, and I think there's a, a bit of a margin of safety built into that, we think that 2023 is going to be more like 220 bucks a share. Uh, we're given that and a couple other, I think, very safe assumptions. We think the market's about fairly valued at 3900 3900 So mm. it makes sense for us the way this trading range is developing, where we're kind of going down to the lows, 36600 3650 and then trading up to 42 We set laid out before all this three scenarios, and those are kind of the lower and upper bounds for the market that we see, for the valuations that we see. But um, no, we're not going to overreact to this number yet, but it's, it's definitely on our radar. And, uh, you know, it's, we, like I said, we have like a 10% uh, reduction of analyst estimates for earnings next year coming in, uh, but this is a 33%. So obviously, if everything tracked like this, we would be wrong and the market would be heavy lower. Mm. Uh, what, if any, do you think corporate warnings or earnings misses once we get to that point will have on the Fed? Will that have an impact on the Fed? Yeah, well, to the extent that earnings are going to flow into the market, just like we saw, the market is this is stuff we've shown at 314 leads credit spreads. These are, you know, financial conditions classically. Yield curves inverted all over the place. Every major yield curve is inverted, real yield curve inverted, real yields across the entire set of uh, duration. Uh, so all these kind of boxes are, have been checked off, but financial conditions have loosened during this rally. So the Fed needs to see this. So if we had earnings flow through, it knocks the market down, it blows out credit spreads. This is kind of a necessary condition for what the Fed's trying to do, which is slow down the economy. So from one side of the coin, you say, oh my gosh, FedEx is missing earnings. Everyone's getting bare, more bearish, but you know, the Fed's not going to stay in this kind of posture if, let's be real, if every company misses earnings by a third of estimates, then we're going to get in a world of pain really fast and the Fed is going to pump the brakes. You know, all these worst case bearish things, they're incongruent. I've made this point a few times. It's incongruent to assume a an hyper hawkish Fed with a really bad economic backdrop and a horrible inflation backdrop. These things don't go together, unfortunately. So like when you have to put all those components together to make a really bearish scenario for the market, I think you're, you're, you have, you have a blind spot. So these things don't go together. That's interesting that you say that because there's some people kind of arguing that they can, right? Like, isn't that the whole rationale for arguing we're in the seventies again, that structurally inflation is going to remain high, even if we have a recession? I mean, uh, that's kind of the, the, the argument. But when I look at the 70s, when I look at that, the stagflation, which is that, the boogeyman, and we wrote, written about this and studies, this requires energy prices to skyrocket if you want to keep creating those year-over-year CPI increases. Uh, this is possible. We've been oil and energy bulls throughout this year. I think because of the, the interesting dynamic that we have where oil could be that Thing that creates the uber bearish scenario we're talking about. You have to be long oil beta in your portfolios. We're writing about that this week. 
when you think about the correlation structure of the energy sector, it's negatively correlated to every other sector. And you think about basically what we would call bimodal return distribution of that sector next year, where what we're basically saying in fancy terms is that there's a, if there, there's no resolution, you have a spike in prices with, with full sanctions and Russian oil off the market fully. And if you have some kind of Goldilocks resolution, then maybe oil prices have some, a lot of air coming out of them. So there's this kind of big two sides of the, the tails that exists, this abnormal in this market. But for us, we look at this and we say, this is perfect. If with this kind of return distribution and this kind of correlation structure, you need to be overweight energy. This is all fancy way of saying it hedges all the really bad things that could happen. So without oil spiking and without energy spiking, we don't see that uber bearish scenario. That's so interesting. I need to break that down because there was a lot of, you know, that that that's, a, I think, a really important but really complicated for, uh, point. But Oliver M., I think this answers your question, which was, how does one hedge inflation right now? Gold and other commodities don't seem to be moving up as inflation keeps going up. I'm not sure that we could say that the oil overweight energy recommendation you're making, Warren, is the hedge for inflation, but I like your framing it as the hedge for everything else going wrong. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Let me just, let me run one clip because um, we have, we have a really interesting clip related to the scenarios that you're talking about. And then I want to come out and unpack what you said again, a minute to make sure that we all fully understand what you're talking about. So I had the opportunity to sit down with Bill Browder, um, CEO of Hermitage Capital. For those of you who are not familiar with him, he has been uh, in a battle, locked in a battle with Vladimir Putin for the better part of a decade. Um, Putin's always trying to get him arrested and and extradite him back to the um, to the uh, to the Soviet Union. He is um, or to Russia. He is uh, sort of a whistleblower on oligarchs. That's how he made his fortune. Is is you know calling out the corruption in Russia. I asked him about what's going on um, in Ukraine and Russia right now because Ukraine's been in the headlines for. Uh, making gains and retaking some territory. Let's have a listen to the cautionary note he struck. Well, I, I think it's amazing and great, and it's hugely boosting the morale of Ukraine. It's boosting the morale of the West, who are who, who we need to continue to support Ukraine. It's hurting the morale dramatically of of Russians. But I, I, I should caution everybody that. It's, this is a very small pr proportion of the territory that Russians have taken that's been reclaimed. It's like less than 10%. And Russia has a huge amount of resources, troops, and, and malicious intent. And I know Putin real well. And he doesn't take humiliation well. He doesn't do humiliation well. And he will escalate. And so we have to, you know... Um, pat ourselves on the back and root for the Ukrainians and feel good about it, but understand that this is a long war. Um, I doubt profoundly that this is the end of the war. Um, 
It'd be lovely and amazing if it was, but I think this is just, you know, a, a, a good blip, a good blip in the right direction. But, you know, this is going to carry on, unfortunately. Certainly, uh, those comments give us all pause based on what we're seeing. Um, and again, a lot of background on Bill Browder and, you know, how how he know, under, really kind of understands how Putin thinks. Um, you can see that full interview, by the way, on my podcast, My Life in Four Trades, um, where we catch up with some of the world's best investors and entrepreneurs and talk about two of their best trades, two of their worst trades. It's not really the trades. It's really sort of the life lessons they've had. So a ton of wisdom there. And that is, you can also find, Warren, you were just on with Harry on our other podcast, uh, The Next Big Trade, right? Yeah, that was uh, a, a lot of fun talking quality, long quality, long energy, kind of similar to what we were just talking about, using yeah. the hedge and, and getting a, sidestepping the landmines in the market. Yeah, and it's and and that's super actionable. Um, both of those you can find both of those for free, everyone. I know YouTube chat's always talking about this for free wherever you download your podcast. Um, I think our team um and Ranjani are going to stick those in the chat where you can find them. But definitely, definitely worth checking out because I feel like this is one of those you know um, assumptions when we're talking about what the market's price for Warren. You know, there's been some maybe some hope that that's going to come to some sort of resolution. So let's just take a step back now, given that, that there's a lot of uncertainty about that. We were talking about, you know, if we're, you know, if there there is a sense that maybe the Fed is going to move until it brings down inflation, how can you also be bullish energy? So we're either going to have a sharp recession or we're going to, um, or we're going to see the Fed hike until until they get those energy prices down or inflation falls. How how can you be overrated energy? And you're sort of saying it's a hedge for everything bad that can happen. So walk us through again what that thinking is. Yeah, I mean, if you think about in a really basic, from a more basic standpoint, stocks and bonds have been negatively correlated for so many years, and then we can see this year that they've been falling together. And next year, under like a lot of these scenarios, you if you have a soft landing, they both rally together. You know, if you if you if you have stagflation, they both fall together still. So I think that you just have a lot more potential outcomes in the future now where stocks and bonds are positively correlated. Mm. There's very few assets that can hedge the risks that are out there. And I think energy is the perfect uh, asset. And there's like a, yeah, the Fed could be trying to bring down inflation, but they may be unsuccessful. And really, they can't impact the main prime driver of oil right now, which is the geopolitical uh, issues that you were that Clip was just talking about. I mean, if 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 we move forward, sanctioning fully sanctioning Russian oil, and you know, really getting off this kind of stalemate that's going on right now and posturing, you know, the oil's going the more, world's going to be short a lot of oil, and so that's something that the Fed's going to have to. It's going to be one heck of a recession if you really want to balance the market on the demand side purely, mm -hmm. take that much supply away. So. You know, oil's going to do its own thing. I think everything else is going to dance to the tune that oil plays. And so that's why you need to have oil exposure through energy in your, your portfolio. That's a great, that's a great point. And we keep saying, where do you hide? Like, where do you find protection? And nothing's been working in the traditional way, as Oliver pointed out. What does, what, what vehicles would you use to do that? And what's the balance, right? So if somebody's not traditionally energy, if it's a hedge, because if it doesn't work out, the good news is everything else in your portfolio should be working out. That's sort of what you're saying. Like you're hedging against the worst case scenario. And if it's, if it's down, you don't worry so much because everything else is up. What's the balance and what's the vehicle to do that? 
Yeah, I mean, we've been, and I've talked about this plenty of times on Real Vision, is like we want to be in these conservative uh, energy companies. So I think there's enough volatility out there in the geopolitical backdrop within the commodity uh, deck that we look at. So you don't need to take on any kind of company-specific risk or beta right here. Buy the, the bellwethers, the big energy companies, the liquid energy companies. If you want to be a little bit different or outside of the benchmark, we do still like the large cap Canadian producers because they just have a lower cost of production and maintenance capex more or less. So that's, I think that gets you, that's 95% of the battle, how much you put in there and it all depends on your mandates. What we've been showing the clients is 10 to 20% energy position. When you think about energy is 5% of the S&P 500, along with, we want to really try and whittle out the rest of the portfolio to just quality companies. So you're just kind of sidestepping the unprofitable tech stuff and you're going to be long this like core quality portfolio and at the same time have a 10 to 20% energy position in safe core energy companies. I think that's going to be that portfolio that we ran from 2000 to 2005 up by about 15% a year. The market was down 2% a year during that same mm-hmm. period. And I really think it's not going to run. It's not going to be exactly the same, but it's going to be a very similar kind of period where we came off the last tech bubble, entered into a new commodity secular bull market Quality plus energy really lapped the market, the broad market, especially the tech space during that period of time. I think it could be very similar here for the next year. So that's that's how we're structuring client portfolios going forward. That's so interesting. So I want to talk a little bit about inflation. Uh, and we were talking about the 70s, by the way, uh, hitting, I think, today on the platform, did a really deep dive um, with Aaron Stanhope. Uh, from O'Shaughnessy, who who looked at the historical comparison. Everyone keeps talking about that. So he really kind of dove in to lots of different factors to answer the question, is it like the 70s? If not, why not? Um, and does it resemble something else? So it's a really fascinating conversation. But you've been looking at different ways the Fed might get to its target or or whether it even can get to its target it seems hard for some of us to look at where inflation is now and think within any kind of reasonable time frame, it's going to come down from, you know, wherever it is, 8%, close to 9%, to all the way down to 2%, which is right. their target. Can they do that? Look, it's hard for us too. And that's why when you see something in the market, you want to pull it out and examine it. You know, you don't want to get, you know, pull yourself into just like a one one position and, and don't think of any out, other uh potential outcomes. And when the market sends signals, and this is one of the charts we showed in our report, it since the last CPI uh, release, these numbers have moved up, but the same point remains is that one year break even inflation rates, certain, they plunged down to below 2%. They're now a little above 2%. And one year CPI swap rates fell into that two handle as well. So these are two highly liquid markets with the objective basically to try to um, predict inflation you know, in the, in the next period that we're looking at. So this is one year ahead. So this is one year out CPI that would be linking to these instruments. So when we see two deep liquid markets that are sending this kind of a signal, we have to stop and ask ourselves, is this, what's the way to get here? Is this, what's the possible avenue? And of course you could have a crushing recession that kills demand and, and gets us down to that 2% level. But what we found is if you start playing with the different scenarios and numbers is if you have oil moderate, let's say it's averaging $80 next year, 
and you have car prices give back about half of their post-pandemic spike, we think that the CPI could very well go to upper twos, basically. You have this housing inflation works with the lag and everyone's talking about that now. I think if we got to that point and just thinking through where financial conditions may be at that point, the Fed, um, you know, the Fed could look through the housing data and say, okay, we already see softness in the, in the pricing and that'll flow through the data next year. And that 3% or so could become the new 2%. So, you know, this is going to tick a lot of people off. So many people are like married to their inflation view. And I don't really care about, you know, there, I'm not married to any view. I'm just trying to look at the world and say, what could go, what could turn out different than the, the, the group, the consensus expects. And this is one of the things I think has a higher probability of occurring than the consensus expects getting inflation down dramatically this time next year. Uh, and that's what, that's what everyone should do is challenge your narrative. And I, and I love that you sort of start that right in your, in your research, uh, you know, note and just say that, say like, you know, what, what, what could I be wrong about? Uh, so that's not priced in the market. What would that, what would that look like, uh, then, what would that mean for, for markets, Warren, if that's the case and give us a time view, we've got Colin asking, um, or, or Marilyn rather asking, do you think the market will keep dropping until the Fed meeting? The, 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 the you know, immediate path of least resistance seems down, but, you know, could, are we at the risk of getting too bearish here? If that is the scenario for next year, when does that kick in? Yeah. I mean, there, I'm still, I think if you get down to the lows that we saw before, Will we break? I, you know, everyone's just playing a guessing game. There's, mm. you know, I'd say coin flip that we break lower. But if we got to 36, I'd be a buyer. I'd be putting money to work at that level for sure. We did it last time. You know, on June 16th, we put a report out to our clients after being bearish all year saying put about 25 or 33% of your capital back into the market here. And if we got there again, then we would make the same move. Nothing has changed. I think, in fact, the forward inflation outlook, in my view, has gotten better. So that's going to be ultimately, I think, uh, once all this kind of, once the data evens out, I think it becomes a catalyst for, for higher prices, for you know, looking through what the Fed's doing now. And just that, you know, that's, I, that's totally out of consensus and I don't think it's priced in, but that's, that's really where I'm leaning right now. Um, and at the other side of it is when you start, you got to really have a big earnings decline in order to start pushing that fair value into like, you know, let's say in a Harry was talking about, it was like 3,200 or so. And when I get to 36, let's say, okay, what if worst case, worst case happens and we get to 32? Well, if you're buying at 36, I think you just ultimately have more upside than downside when you look at the probabilities. And that's what it's all about here. So we could be another 10% lower, but if you can't handle a 10% drawdown in this business, you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong business. Right. When you have to size your risk. We talk about that all the time. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
it's funny, Warren, because you 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 do sound you know a little bit more um, optimistic about inflation coming down. And we were we were going through Twitter as we always do when we're talking during the editorial meeting, and we pulled this one out. We couldn't help ourselves. Um, we were going to do a really serious one about break evens, much like you just talked about. But then we saw Cardi B was at it again, uh, tweeting. Uh, she's really been on the macro scene lately, tweeting interest rates going up in two weeks, rents over the top high, and there's no inventory on homes, WTF. And um, Matt, uh, who does our newsletter, for those of you who get that, was like, is this a signal perhaps that they may pivot like at a contrary indicator when everyone thinks inflation is a problem and going higher and it's like really out there in the mainstream? We used to say when it was front page news, right? But that I guess that's the version of it these days. Um Hey, if you're, so if you're if you're in the uh, inflation high forever camp and never coming down, then you're you're basically siding with the um, you know with Cardi B's, which is you know, kind of like the dentists of the yeah. You know, if it's on Twitter, then you're already late. Is the it should be the new rule. That's exactly kind of you know that's exactly what we were thinking. Um, but you know it's hard with with the lags. So if you think it's coming down, do you think bonds have already peaked? Uh, you mean interest interest rates on bonds? Uh, the yeah, ten- yeah, the yields on yeah, the uh, yields on bonds. That's yeah. I but you know, I'll be honest. I did not expect mortgage rates to spike back up like this. And so, like, there's there's things that could be I could be wrong about. But my best guess is that bonds are a long from here, but not a uber attractive one either. I don't think you have the upside if if if, if you get bonds rallying because inflation comes down really quickly. You're going to get long duration equities giving you a lot more juice. And so I prefer those high quality stocks we're talking about. Mm. But, you know, bonds, what you're hedging at bonds, though, is that inflation comes down due to a really nasty recession. There's no hedge there. For, there's nothing to do on the equity side you can do in that scenario. Energy, probably forget about it. Commodities, forget about it. Bonds, where you go, I think you have enough yield. I think CPI has rolled over. And historically, when you look out one year from the peak in CPI, bonds return about 8%. And they have um, really modest drawdowns at that point. So, yeah, I think bonds have a place, uh, but I'm not crazy. One thing we haven't talked about is quantitative tightening, right? So, you know, in the scenario that you just laid out where, you know, uh, the Fed hikes and and gets a handle on inflation, inflation comes down to their target. You know, that seems like a pretty good scenario, one that we're all hoping for. But then there's that quantitative tightening, um, which would kind of bring their situation back to some sort of, you know, pre the gray financial quantitative easing that they set out on. So they kind of maybe get back into a more neutral stance on that. Are you watching that? How can that throw a wrench in things? Well, I just think it's just another tool that they're utilizing. And I think that if the data starts moving in their direction, it's another lever they could pull. I mean, I think there's a lot of kind of uh, overhype and fear about it. Like, Oh, the Fed's going to pull too many reserves out of the system. I, I don't think that's really a, a, a concern at this point in time. I mean, it's one of those things where if the Fed is is working on an exact transmission mechanism and that starts to falter, they can just reverse course in my view. So, you know, mm-hmm. that's not the type of fear where everyone's looking at it that usually gets you. If everyone's looking at something, it's not usually the thing that jumps up and bites you. And so, no, I, I'm not worried about QT and how the Fed manages their balance sheet yet. Uh, if they prove to be incompetent and make a policy mistake or something like that, I guess that changed but I think Powell's been a clear communicator and, uh, you know, I actually give him kind of high marks. I know that's, again, uh, consensus. People don't like hearing that, but that's where I'm at. 
I think we, I think a lot of people forget we're really in uncharted territory. You know, once they, once they unleash the QE and, um, and certainly we never experienced a pandemic before. I mean, there are a lot of things that just have, are not in the playbook. Um, so there is a lot of criticism, but, you know, as history, I think maybe we'll reflect back on the fact that it's a really challenging time. Um, I think St Stanley Druckermiller was out tweeting today or on some YouTube talking about the fact that it's the most challenging. Some people have been in the business many, many years. This is a really challenging time. Um, labor market. Uh, some people are thinking maybe the Fed, uh, it's not just commodity inflation they want to roll over, that they're going to have to go until the unemployment rate's a lot higher. That is a great... Now, there, there's a... When we wrote this report, we zeroed in on the labor market, labor market because Powell, as I said, he's a direct communicator and mm -hmm. he has singled out the labor market as the place he's looking right now, you know, and seeing an, a, a, an imbalance. Um, and, you know, I think that when you really break the labor market apart, and if you trust the data fully, then it is really out of balance. So the, the, the chart that we have and that everybody looks at is this job openings exceeding job seekers by so much. And the kind of analysis I'm seeing is that, you know, you know, the average recession, I think it reduces job openings by two and a half million typically. And so we're so far out of balance. I think it's 6 million, just the distance between job seekers and job openings is like 6 million. So we're so far, we'd have, we'd have to have like such a super normal recession in order to, to balance these numbers. And the, there are problems in the labor market. I mean, labor participation rate is still at 1% below what it was pre-pandemic. And when you look at labor participation rate for working age population, that's back to pre-pandemic levels. So what this tells me is that that labor participation rate, the labor force shrinking is really due to older retire, pulling forward retire, retirements. That, that group is not coming back into the, the labor force. So there is a real potential tightness developing in the labor market. With all that said, I do wonder how accurate the JOLTS data will prove to be, the job means yeah. data. If I, I'm not going to build an entire view of the labor economy based on that data yet, because here's the thing, we've moved to this work from home, remote work thing. You, you hear about how that data is collected and there's a lot of duplicate job openings for a yes. every state. If you have one job opening, it might get advertised in every state. And how is that showing up? I haven't seen good uh, analysis on that. But I'm a little suspicious of this huge spike that's happened in the work from home environment in job openings. Uh, and so I'm, I'm skeptical to build and I'm hesitant to build an entire view on the labor market on that chart. And that's the one I see most commonly. Yep. We have seen the same conversation. We are having the same conversation. Uh, we are going to be taking a really serious look at inflation um, as as part of a you know a series coming up, and labor market is top of mind, getting a real handle on what's going on there for us. So we're going to be following that thread along with you, Warren. Want to ask you really quickly as we close out here. Um, I, I got to get Casey's question in. Um, I missed it earlier. It's a good one. Um, basically asking, uh, can land property hold strong in a housing bear market? Maybe land over property, but you know this idea that uh, we're going to have you know central banks raising rates more than people expect. Maybe you have high inflation with that. Um, it's sort of interesting because from a housing market perspective, there's been some great data out on the fact that so many people are locked in with their low mortgages. Might might look different than last time. Are you looking at housing, Warren? Yeah, we're, you know, that's a big, whole other discussion. Uh, to answer the land question, uh, I'm not crazy about land or anything. When you're talking about, you know, getting 4% uh, on like a 52-week, T-bill right now or something close to that. 
that is uh, what we would call an opportunity cost. So if you're going to buy a zero yield negative carry asset like land and not have unproductive assets like that in this environment, they're going to get hit. I think that's mm. part of the pricing that's coming around. Now, of course, with all that said, each piece of land is is unique in its own way. And so I'm talking more in the general sense. Um, that's not for that doesn't mean every piece of land is going to go down in this uh, period of time. But uh, overall, I, I I think house prices are coming down. But I'm not a I don't see the path to the uber bearish housing scenario that I mean I think is really popular and gets you a lot of retweets on Twitter. Yeah, that that's a great point about land. Great point. And and I hope that answers your question. Um, Warren, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. As I think back, when I think of that, my takeaway from all this, which which is super interesting and we're gonna have to talk more about in in the future, is that you know, the this we all know the 60-40 portfolio has been a disaster and not work for anyone. It sounds like your version of that right now, what you feel better about is an 80-20, 80 quality names. Uh, of known companies that can withstand this environment and 20% energy as a hedge to crazy shit happening, to just bad stuff happening in this, in this really uncertain environment. Is, is that, is that right? Does that sound right? Yeah. Ener- energy is going to be the new diversifying asset, at least through next year, in my opinion. And so you have to have an overweight for that reason, regardless of your standalone outlook for the space that's been our and we can throw we can prove that quantitatively through math just showing return distributions and correlations but the bottom line is energy is going to hedge your portfolio and it should be overrated fantastic warren that's a great a great takeaway and thought to leave us with as we try to relax over the week and embrace for a whole raft of central bank meetings next week including the fed um as well as you know any any pre-announcements that can come out or bombs like fedex dropped on us today so fantastic stuff thank you so much thanks for having me have a good weekend yeah and thanks to all of you have a great weekend for anybody in the new york area you know uh real vision friend jared dillian also DJ extraordinaire is playing a gig, uh, in New York. So if you're around, you're looking for some fun, go check it out. I think we dropped the the info in the link. Um, but it's always a good time. So hope, hope we can see all there. Uh, take care and good luck out there. What's up revolutionaries. Thanks for tuning in to the real vision daily briefing for more content like this. Head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.